This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Kyle, so good to see you. <laughs> hey, Kyle. I'm so glad to be here oh, with you today. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. If the listeners got the experience that I just got, you were jolted. Uh, somebody, somebody just swerved in the middle of a highway. <laughs> Um, thank you guys for that. I feel so well greeted. Most yeah. of the time, you guys give me nothing. We're uh, gonna do better. I, I, you know what? I'll receive it as a blessing. Uh, and those who bless me, I will. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I'm not gonna do that. Uh, all right, y'all. Well, we're in Genesis 14. Uh, 14 today. I was going to say more chapters, but no, we're just in Genesis 14. We've been in Genesis 12 and 13 and finding out that God has set apart Abraham and Abraham's family. And the road to that begins pretty rocky. We get to encounter some family drama right out of the gate. And that spills over into this chapter. We're going to talk a little bit about a rescue story and a strange priest here, because that's what's going on in Genesis chapter 14, action packed. And so I don't want to read the like everything word for word, partly because I'm going to mess up every single one of the dozens of complicated names in this passage. Um, but I do want to give like a broad outline of what happens in Genesis 14 before we get to the encounter with this strange priest. So it says, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and then it begins to list a lot of kings of a lot of places. Keep reading, keep reading. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> it says, it essentially is like, listen, uh, there was a lot going on in the ancient Near East. There were a lot of different rulers. There was a lot of different, uh, there was energy. There was a lot of kingdoms, vying kingdoms, vying powers. And it says in verse eight, then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of, okay. And then we get a bunch of other kings again. Mm -hmm. They went out and they joined battle in the Valley of Shittim with Chedilamer. It's Shittim, right? It's Shittim. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost positive this it's not I was like name. of all of the names that you did pronounce. <laughs> I did not do that on purpose. And you did it with absolute confidence. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you have to read these names. You, you gotta just roll, yeah. roll with it. Yeah. But you guys didn't allow me to do that. <laughs> and right after we have Shittim, it's Shed Lamer, King of Elam. I mean <laughs> You did it again. Go move on. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. I'm crying. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to keep reading. Move on. Okay. So this valley. <laughs> okay. This valley. I'm here. They're going to fight it. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. So there's a fight. There's a battle. <laughs> Oh gosh! It's sort of a storm. It's oh, almost yeah. like a storm of some sort <laughs> in the valley. <laughs> you know, for our listeners, we always talk about the vital importance of communicating things at an eighth grade reading level. <laughs> I'd just like to note that we have, in fact, accomplished that. Yeah, we've an eighth yeah. grade sense of humor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, so there's a battle between a bunch of kings of a bunch of places, some of which have vaguely inappropriate names. And it says the valley was full of pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. The rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what? who was living close to Sodom? Lot. 
They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So Abraham has been taken, okay? Oh, excuse me. Lot has been taken, okay? Uh, Like Liam Neeson style, Abraham now has to tell the kings of uh, that, that have taken him. I have a certain set of skills, and I am coming to get my. I'm coming to get my kin. Um, so he's he's taken, and it says one who had escaped. So obviously, big fight, lots of things happening. People are being kidnapped. People are being taken. You know, you can imagine people are getting thrown on the backs of horses, or maybe they're getting chained up. They're getting pulled out of there. Are there no horses in the ancient area? <laughs> this has gotten really weird. No, I'm just saying, like, there's a guy, imagine it, there's a guy, he's running away, he makes it out, and he goes and tells Abraham, who was living by the Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite. Peaceably, peaceably yep. by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he goes and tells him, hey, your family has been taken captive. And when Abraham heard this, it says he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them and went in pursuit of them, divided his forces, and they brought back all the possessions, and they brought back his kinsman lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Okay, well, praise God we're at the end of that section, okay? Uh-huh. This will be a passage to which we will never return on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it's going to come up again. Yeah, I bet, <laughs> what I do you bet. think, JT? Well, uh, it feels broken but whole. Oh, <laughs> that is, you, you get, I'm giving you three of those things in a piece. Okay, that was okay. one. Kyle, I'm so lost. Where are we in the text? Well, we're at the, we're, we're at the Genesis 14 verse 16. We've gone through those verses. I've just okay. kind of I've skimmed the surface of all of these places and all of these rulers, the battle that's ensued, and the kidnapping that has now happened. You've done a wonderful job. So, just in case anybody missed anything, <laughs> here's where we are. We had we had. Um, we had five kings and four kings, right? Uh, and basically there is a battle between those kings. Um, four kings are going to defeat the five kings and um, Lot gets dragged off. And so now it's Abram's job to sweep in and clean up the mess that Lot has contributed to. Absolutely. So, okay, here's one of the things that I have to say about this. The, this is the first time, I don't know for you, this is the first time I realized, like when I'm reading through Genesis based off of what happened at Babel, like nations, kingdoms, and rulers have multiplied. Yeah. The, the terrain that Abraham and Lot are in is not just, I mean, we think about, when we think about the Old Testament, particularly the Pentateuch, we really think about like Israel and Egypt, right? I mean, those are the two big ones. But there is a multitude of kingdoms and empires probably of varying degrees of size and power. They're, they're allies. There's like statecraft happening. There are allies that have been made. There are relationships that exist. They are fighting with one another. They are fighting for one another. I just think I, the reason I, I want to make that point is I do think over and over again, particularly in any wondering stories about the people of Israel, we have this very snob-like imagination that this was a group of people who were just totally amorphous, disorganized, peasant farmers living out in the desert. They couldn't have known anything. But what we're seeing here in the in the the cities and the states and the kingdoms and the rulers that I glossed over or said <laughs> with too much certainty. What we're finding is there is an incredibly textured and complex geopolitical system at play here. 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot that's mm-hmm. going on. It is not just ignorant savages, so to speak, out in the Middle East doing whatever they want to do in desert sand. There is a competition of resources. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is all of these kinds of things are happening. And so I just think that's an important point for us to capture here. That's the first time I really feel like it comes up. We heard about Babel. We heard about the dispersion. But this is a story that really paints the, the consequences of that dispersion and very stark detail, right? Yeah, I mean, Lot 2 has settled in, you know, prime real estate based on the description of it um, in an arid in an arid region, which is also interesting, isn't it? That the land that's given to Abram is not visibly the most desirable land. <clears throat> and so there's Lot, he's a, he's a sitting duck with all of his merch that he hauled out of Egypt. And, um, and so now, I mean, it's just fascinating to me because now it's still Abram sees it as his responsibility to go redeem this person who is pretty irredeemable. Like we're going to find out later on. And again, Lot keeps getting mentioned because everybody knows the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and, and not only that, they know the result of that story, which is something that we'll get into in a little bit. Um, Lot is going to be a, a forerunner to some of their most uh, virulent enemies that that the that the audience would have recognized, and so they're following this story really, really closely. But when we hear that Abram goes and brings Lot back, they would be booing, like they would be like, "Leave him! You know, he's a he's a loser. Just leave him." And this won't be the last time that Lot gets dragged out of an unfortunate circumstance that he himself has placed himself in. <laughs> yeah, that is unfortunately too true. So Lot and his household, his possessions, they get taken captive. You know, Lot was dwelling near Sodom, and it's going to be, that's going to, again, like you said, that's going to be a big plot point as we go forward. Mm -hmm. And so Abraham goes, it says he goes, and he goes with some allies, right? It looks like uh, Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and of Aner. I'm I'm just going for it here. These were allies. Before you say it. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) These were allies of Abraham. And he goes down and he's got some men to go with him. I mean, I think one thing to stop and note here is that what Abraham does is righteous. Yeah? Like Abraham acts righteously in this moment. His family has been taken captive. Yeah, he takes responsibility for for what is his, I guess you could say. Even though you could argue that he would have been justified in just letting Lot fry. Yeah, absolutely. And he doesn't do that. He goes, he risks his own. I mean, this is different than what we just saw with him and Sarah though, right? Mm -hmm. That was a situation where there was great personal, in Abraham's mind, great personal risk. Mm -hmm. And he put as much distance as he could between him and that risk in his mind. But here there is great personal risk and he takes his best men and he goes down to chase down Lot who is far less deserving of this rescue than Sarah would have been of the protection of Abraham. That's right. So it really is a reversal of that story because you had someone who um, did not deserve to be uh, left in a, or placed in a dangerous situation, um, placed in dangerous situation for self-preservation. And now we're going to see him in an act of self-denial or self-sacrifice, lay down his own uh, safety on behalf of someone who is completely undeserving. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture. But what does the Bible say about generosity? 
In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. So once we get to the end of this rescue story, we encounter a change here. The story the story changes and gets into what is one of the more unique passages in Scripture. Um, and uh, what we hear here is that after his return from the defeat of, I'm not going to say this guy's name because you're going to make fun of me for saying it. Uh, I'm going to call him Cheddar Ched. Ched. I'm going to call him Ched. Ched. Cheddar. What's up, Ched? What up, Cheddar? Uh, uh, he returns from the feet of uh, this guy and the kings who were with him. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. Uh, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Immediately, this is a distinguishing mark of Mel- this is This should be going like, whoa, who is this guy? Like, mm-hmm. And keep in mind, Israel at this point is not unfamiliar with priest. Okay, they got they have a priest and they are going to hear in the story that God is revealing to them a whole priestly system that they're going to operate under. So they know what a priest is. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham my, by God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And it says, Abraham gave him a 10th of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Before we get to Melchizedek, let's just let's settle just some of the narrative stuff here. Like Jen pointed out in the last episode, we see that Abraham has changed his tune mm-hmm. about receiving gifts, right? Mm-hmm. From Pharaoh, it was like, Come on, give it to me. And from here, he's like, nope, I am not. I'm essentially, he's saying, I trust God. Mm-hmm. I don't need what you have. I'm not going to take what you have. And I don't want you to be able to claim credit for something that really the glory belongs to God and to God alone. That's right. And he also doesn't want to have any form of indebtedness to anyone like the king of Sodom. And so Abraham refuses that gift. Uh, but we encounter in that process a blessing. But the blessing's not coming from Abraham. The blessing is coming from Melchizedek, mm-hmm. who is identified as the priest of God Most High. It says he brought, he brought out bread and wine and he blessed him. And it's interesting. I didn't notice this until yesterday. I didn't realize that Abraham recycles a the blessing he's just received from Melchizedek in his response to the king of Sodom. 
right? So it says, hey, he was priest of God most high. Melchizedek said, blessed be Abraham by God most high. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He quotes the blessing he just received mm-hmm. from Melchizedek. I had never noticed that. I was really surprised by that. And it left me wondering, I wonder if that was like a, I wonder if that was like a generic blessing that was attached to followers of Yahweh at this point. And that Melchizedek knew that and was invoking that or whether or not Abraham is truly receiving the blessing from this priest. And then he's articulating it on behalf of his worship of Yahweh. Yeah, I don't know, but I do think we have to address the weirdness of the fact that this rando shows up who's a priest of Yahweh, mm-hmm. right? Anybody want to take a crack at that? I'm ready. Go. Speak <laughs> your piece. <laughs> well, I don't want to go too in, too far into the rabbit hole first, but this is what God does. God mm-hmm. often just shows up on the scene out of nowhere in places you won't expect. And so, I mean, the big question here is, is, is this random? Mm-hmm. Because if, if you don't know Psalm 110, if you don't know Hebrews chapter 7, then this, this part of the Bible could likely get cut out. I'm not saying it should get cut out. I'm saying like this, this, this is a few chapters that, seem, that seemingly come out of nowhere. He's just mm-hmm. defeated a bunch of kings. His family story is going to continue in Egypt. Uh, and then eventually back in the Negev and then a covenant. I mean, like, Why? Why is this in Genesis and why do the psalmists and the author of Hebrews make such a big deal out of it? Because I don't think they would Mm -hmm. say that it's random. I would say God is doing something very specific in redemptive history in this scene. And it's supposed to be shocking and surprise. We we see it as random first, but Mm -hmm. then we're supposed to be shocked by God's grace after we we dig into the text a little bit. Okay. Yep. I'll say probably the last time that we talked about this, I felt very sure. Like, I just felt very confident. I got to tell you, as I was looking at it in preparation for today, I was reading some other stuff. I got to say, I, I don't know. Like, I yes. genuinely, I'm probably <laughs> more confused than I've ever been about this. Because I went back through Hebrews 7. And they if you have not read Hebrews 7, whoa, Hebrews 7, I feel like it makes it even more complicated. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that it clears it up um, because you're getting stuff like, I mean, the writer, the author of Hebrews pretty much tells, he says stuff like, yeah, well, you know, Levi too was kind of blessed because he was in Abraham's loins. Abraham met him. And I'm like, what? What are we talking about here? Yeah. This weird thing. It's like, I don't know. I, I got to tell you, the story to me is as confounding as it's ever been. I think it's supposed to be though. Like, so I don't want any listener to hear any of us, especially me say with a lot of certainty and confidence, this is exactly what's happening here. I do think just like we've talked about already that sometimes these issues are meant to be left a little mysterious. And I think the biblical authors leave them mysterious to draw us deeper into the beauties and riches of what God is doing through Christ, not give us a lot of certainty and confidence that we have it all figured out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Melchizedek is one of those is one of those characters. And I really think if we're going to introduce the topic of Christophany at all, 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 all supposed Christophanies, none of them can we be certain about, but they do all draw us deeper into the biblical text. Like another example would be, who's that fourth person uh, in the furnace? Mm-hmm. Right. Or, or another one would be, who's the angel of the Lord that meets Hagar in Genesis chapter six or Joshua or Joshua. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. because if we're taking Trinitarianism theology and applying it to the text, God, the father always reveals through God, the son and accomplishes by the Holy spirit. So I'm not sure it's enough to just simply say this, that they are theophanies. 
we have to say they're in some sense Christophanies because the, the father is making himself known through the son by the spirit. Unless Kyle, you're wanting, and I know you wouldn't want to say this. We can't say it's the father. I know. I, I, and I'm with you. I'm not for this being a theophany because I, I don't know if God is without form then I don't know that I'd be like, oh, this is a figural presentation of God. What I also struggle with though, and I think this is where we got locked up the last time, is I don't understand, okay, doesn't it devalue the incarnation if the son of God is down on earth? We get we get every indication that Melchizedek presents himself. In, he, Abraham's mind isn't blown. We, it doesn't appear to be an angelic visitation. It's not any, there's not any sort of thing that tells us that his body doesn't work like our bodies do. It just feels like yeah, he's a priest. And I feel like if, the, if this is a Christophany, do we have a pre-incarnate incarnation here? Because if so... Well, it can be a pre-incarnate incarnation. Well, it can yeah, be a pre-incarnate revelation. Yeah, but what are you talking about? <laughs> okay, wait, wait. Before we... First of all, I don't want to repeat the episode where we totally had a slap down over this. No. Uh, if people want to hear that, they can go back and listen to it. I want us to actually find what's the common ground in this conversation um, between us. Carl <laughs> shaking his head no. Uh, but just let's make sure everybody understands what the conversation is. Um, some people would say that Melchizedek is Christ. Um, in, in, Not or, Jesus, that he's the son. That he's the son um, in a pre-incarnate form. Others mm -hmm. would say, no, I mean, he's telling us things that are pointing toward Christ. And then he's used in a poetic way as an image in Psalm 110 and also in Hebrews chapter 7. Um, so I, that's what the conversation is about. And um, JT has previously forcibly stated that he thinks this is Jesus standing there. Nope, I don't think it's Jesus. <laughs> I think it's the son. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. We're, we're not gonna we're not gonna get heated about it. We've done no. that. But yeah, me, yeah. And me, then Kyle and I would lean more toward the uh, poetic reading. Is that fair, Kyle? Yeah, and, and but my biggest yes, absolutely, Jen. There's no doubt, JT, that what Hebrews said. I I think that the reason I said I was more confused is that when I back when went back and read Hebrews seven, I got to tell you, it doesn't feel like Melchizedek is just being put in as some placeholder. No. Like, no, it feels far more substantive. And as I was reading through it again, that's what made kind of put me back on the fence is like, I don't know what this is. I guess my biggest hang up on it being the son of God, and maybe that's just what it is. We say it was a pre-incarnate man manifestation, appearance, revelation of the son of God. But I would struggle significantly with that from a Christological standpoint. Is, is there... What? How is he presenting himself in this manner that isn't human or the assumption of human nature? It just, I don't know. Here's, here's where we all agree. We would all agree that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Right. right. Type is, is a biblical theology term that is meant to prefigure, shadow, kind of a figural reading that he is a king of righteousness. Mm -hmm. He brings out bread and wine. He blesses. He he is a he is a, a priest of the most high God. And, and the only other person that that's true of is Jesus. And so mm -hmm. put it real simply, Jesus is the true and better Melchizedek. Yeah. Right. That's what Hebrews 7 is saying. Yeah, and we right. all we all totally agree there. Yeah. And I don't want to forcibly say I know for sure that. What I do think I want to say is that the Bible is intentionally, especially in Psalm 10, in Hebrews chapter 7, leading us into greater mystery about why is the Bible so closely connecting 
Melchizedek and Jesus in a way that it, it's not so much that that Jesus is connected as much as the son of Abraham or the son of like we have types that aren't as mysterious. This is a far more mysterious type. The mm-hmm. same way the angel of the Lord is, and the, same, and the same way uh, that um, uh, the, the fourth figure in the furnace is, where I think we're meant to say, wait a second, maybe God is far more intertwined to this story through the son than we had originally realized. And I don't think it actually devalues the incarnation. I think it actually heightens the, the what we think is happening in the incarnation. And the, the, the reason I, so let me just say this last thing, Jen, I know you, I know you want to respond to that. My biggest hang up here. Well, of course it's like, brings up bread and wine, priest of the most high God. But verse 19 is what's been getting me lately. In Genesis chapter 12, we are told that God is the one who blesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that. Who, who blesses? God blesses. <laughs> does, does anybody else bless? Well, he does tell God, God does tell Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. So purportedly, other, other purportedly can. others can bless Abraham. Yes. But, mm-hmm. And it's entirely possible that that's what Melchizedek is doing. But here we are two chapters later and we have a, it's not, he's not just saying a guy came out and blessed Abraham. He right. is saying a king and, and a priest, a priest yep. who brings out bread and wine and he blesses him. Whose name means king of righteousness, who is the king of Salem, which Salem. is peace. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> but I just, yeah, I just don't think I have to go all, I, I fully agree with what you're saying about um, this is, I think it is a way of weaving the significance of the sun throughout the Old Testament narrative before the sun takes center stage in the New Testament narrative. Hebrews doubles down on that. He says he has no genealogy, no father, no mother, doesn't have beginning of days, doesn't have end of life. But yeah, you're saying that's literal. Is that real? You're saying that's literal and I would say probably not. Verse three, without father or mother, this is Hebrews chapter seven, verse three. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have a genealogy, he doesn't have beginning of days nor end of life. He resembles the son of God. He remains a priest forever. Is Melchizedek a priest right now? If by the order of Melchizedek is still instituted in the priesthood because Jesus Christ is the better priest. He's the better, he's the Hebrews true. Hebrews to say that Levi is no longer a priest. Right. He's saying but Melchizedek whole, is still a priest. Right, but, but part the of this- The only way for Melchizedek to still be a priest is for it to be a person that lives forever. Well, no, hold on, because part of it, because even in, in Hebrews, he's not saying that Melchizedek, I don't think he's saying Melchizedek is living forever. I think he's saying that the order of Melchizedek is the priestly order that goes on forever. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's incredibly what significant. This I think that's incredibly significant for the writer of Hebrews because he is trying to demonstrate that the Israelite sacrificial system, as they knew it in the Levitical priesthood under the Mosaic covenant, had something that predated it, which was a priest under the covenant with Abraham, whose blessing was given to Abraham. I think what what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do across the letter is demonstrate, listen, the sacrificial system is done. It's mm-hmm. over. And guess what? It's not just that it's been totally absolved. I'm actually, we're actually going further back. We're not going to Aaron and the Levitical priest. We're going all the way back to Melchizedek, priest of the most high God. It, I think this is tied far more into the relationship between the covenant with Abraham and Moses than it is tied into whether or not this is a Christophany or just some random priest. I think what- That was, is true. We're not disagreeing about that. That right. is topology that- I, I think you've said it, you said that well. My, but the question remains, 
is Melchizedek, not the order, is Melchizedek a priest forever? Because that's the, the Bible, it, it's, he's not saying that the order is forever. He's saying he is a priest forever. Well, let me ask you this. Is Jacob forever? No. The Lord said to my Lord, you are a priest forever. And after the order of Melchizedek, that's what Psalm 110 says. So the you is referring to the son. Exactly. You totally. are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, not, not Melchizedek is a priest Hebrews forever. Hebrews 7 says he remains a priest forever. That Melchizedek does? Mm-hmm. I, I, now I, I got to look I, up Hebrews 7. I could imagine this being— You're making up stories. No, I, I think—but we, we often see names in the ancient Near East used for placeholders for collective groups of people. And it's not, un, it's not uncommon to say that, the, that David's kingdom is going to last forever. Did the mm-hmm. division last forever? No. But the— be, yes, but the, 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 fulfill, the, the Davidic kingdom does not exist as David would have understood it. It has been properly fulfilled and it does live forever in right, Jesus. Right, but we don't have the author of Hebrews going back to 2 Samuel 7 and saying this is a Christophany. We might have the author of Hebrews doing that here with Genesis chapter 14, which is why not all things that God does are Christophanies. It says, like, again, verse 3 matters a lot. And again, don't I'm not trying to be forceful. I'm trying to say there's mystery here, that I think the author of Hebrews is inviting us into a deeper understanding of who God is, what he does in biblical history, specifically through the Son. I'll say it one more time. We have to deal with this verse. Without father, who, who else is that true of? Without mother, who else is that true of? Without genealogy, who else is that true of? Without beginning of days, un, un, I mean, eternally begotten, nor end JT, of life. In a book that is full of genealogies. Remains a priest forever. <laughs> oh, but what does it say here? Resembling the son of God, not being Which is the son of true. God. Interesting. Which is also true. Interesting. So, Genesis is a book that is loaded with genealogies, right? Mm-hmm. Why does Melchizedek not have a genealogy? Because he is a Canaanite. He is a pagan. Or he's from a pagan. He's not a pagan. He's a priest of the Most High God. But he is he is a, a Gentile, so to speak. And so that's another big piece of this. It's a superior priesthood uh, also because it does not just include the Jew. It includes Jew and Gentile. And, and we are all parts of that priesthood. Amen. So I think... I think your point is you're over you're over arguing something, which is so out of character for you that I hardly know what to do at this moment. All of that is true. Like everything you're saying is, I, 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 man, yes, amen, beautiful. Without having to add more, I I believe those things. I'm not trying to say I'm going to die on a hill that this is oh, a yeah. Christophany. <laughs> I, None of I, us but, but, I, but I would die on that previous hill. Like I would die on the hill of this being a typology. Everything you just said, that's a oh, whole yeah, yeah. Oh, well, nobody's arguing it's not a typology. Yeah, it, it is. And I, and I do think that what you're saying, and it's important. Listen, again, this is a great time for us to come to the audience and say, there are people very strong, not just on this podcast, there are strong thinkers who believe this is a Christophany. There are strong thinkers who believe that it is a representation of what we're talking about here, which is that more it is purely typological in nature. And so just know, 
We are having an intramural conversation over a 1% disagreement issue that binds nobody under uh, some sort of false belief. It's like these are both viable no, yeah. ways forward. I, I, yeah. Again, I want to emphasize it. I think this leads us to greater mystery, not certainty. Yeah. So the invitation is not to say, hey, look, who, this is this is a pre-incarnate Christ. But it is to say yeah. there are a few places in the Bible, angel of the Lord, fourth, fourth guy in the furnace, and here that just seem different than – God speaking to somebody or God sending a prophet that I think are, are meant to have us say, whoa, whoa, wait a second, what's what's going on here? That's all I, I'm trying to say. Yeah, Jacob wrestling with an angel will be another one we're going to get to in this uh, season. So by then we will have ratcheted back our uh, angstiness. Let me ask you guys this question. Are you willing to concede any of those as being potential Christophanies? Well, I'm going to say what I've said before. I just don't care. I want to take what I need to learn from those scenes without pushing them beyond where they need to go. Am I supposed to understand something about the sun from those occurrences? Yeah, and that's good enough for me. What you said is right. You never want to take a text further than it's intended to go, but you always want to go as far as it intends to go. Yeah. And so the question is, would you concede that maybe, maybe in these texts we should go further? That's my question. I would say maybe you could, I would say I don't think people who make the argument it's a Christophany are crazy, No, but I would not go that far. Yeah. That's and that's, pro- that's probably where I'm at. I'll say I'm probably more sympathetic than I was the last time we talked about this. Again, partly because I do feel like a lot of the language in Hebrews 7 is so strong. I mean, the writer of Hebrews does not he is not playing soft with Melchizedek. He articulates him as a very real figure that has a very real consequence for how we think about Jesus. And so I do think there's more there, but I have to say at this point, I remain unconvinced. And I think partly because of uh, some of what I think Hebrews is getting at beyond this passage. And then the other part, just because I still feel like, and maybe this is just a place where I would need to accept some level of mystery that I, you know, am, feel like I can't accept at this point, but like, I still ask myself, what is a Christophany? Like, if it's not, if it's the son of God, but it's not incarnate, it's not an assumption of human nature. Is it just figural? Is it a third thing? I just would want to be careful that it doesn't really play bongos, so to speak, on our Christology. Yeah, that's fair. That's it. You've always had that question. Like, is he... Is he physical? Is he material? Like, is he there? Like, that's that's what I feel like you get hung up on. That's uh, that's a big one for me. Yeah, I mean, but like, you're right. Like, when you go to the furnace scene, that's why I've all, often said, you know, I think that is an angel of the Lord because I go, wow, is that an embodied, like, what what's going on there? So I do think that's a hang up, but I, well, we should land the plane where we agree and say it clearly one more time for the listener. Uh, but we agree. There is no debate. Melchizedek is a clear type of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Jesus is a truer and better of whatever Melchizedek was intended mm-hmm. to be. And there are very, there is a lot of texture in that Genesis passage to get us to see bread and wine, righteousness and peace, priest of the most high God. It, the typology is not loose. It is rock solid yeah. Cement. And then the Psalm 110 and Hebrews 7 just drive it home again and again. So that is undebatable. And we should celebrate that we are in the earliest chapters of the Bible and already being given these, these pieces of clarity, these, these, um, these seeds that are going to grow. 
That's yeah. good. Oh, wow. Well, I hope you enjoyed the discussion. We talked about a rescue story and a strange priest today. And uh, we're going to continue to explore the life of Abraham as we go forward this season. We'll get to start talking through some covenant, which will be really fun as we get into Genesis 15 and talk about God's covenant with Abraham and covenant theology broadly. So hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can join the conversation by finding us on social media, Knowing Faith Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, patreon.com slash knowing faith has some cool stuff if you want to check that out. Have a great day. Grace and peace.